if you ever have occasion to travel with our church on a mission trip to the Dominican Republic, something that will likely stand out to you among many things is that along the highways and the byways and even the dirt pathways of this island nation are a number of unfinished cement block buildings. They're literally everywhere. Now, why would anyone start to build something and stop? Have you ever done that? Started a project and stopped? You probably can come up with a few good reasons. Maybe it's an issue of money. Because we got so far and didn't have enough money to continue. Did you know that construction on the Washington Monument was completed in two phases? And the first was begun in 1848. It lasted to 1854, but when the money ran out, so did the work. The government did not, as it might be inclined to do today, go and borrow enough money to finish the project. It instead decided the project monies needed to be raised, and work was resumed in 1876 when the funding came in. It was accomplished in 1884. Sometimes people start to build and don't finish because they get bored. Sometimes they just run out of ambition. Sometimes they get to a place where they don't know what the next step is. They don't know how to proceed, and so they stop. Sometimes people start to stop because they find a more interesting project. In the Dominican Republic, by the way, starting and not finishing is intentional. In a land of corruption where clear title to certain parcels uh, can be suspect, and subject also to a higher bidder, to a government official, beginning a building is one way of marking territory. It's one way of saying this lot is taken. This lot belongs to somebody. People just want to send a message that the land is owned. Sometimes people start something and don't finish it because their priorities change. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you now, we take our place underneath your word, and we pray that as you, by your spirit, minister to us, Lord, that you would peel away the impediments to our hearing. Maybe, God, it's an increased anxiety that we're experiencing these days, some worry or fear. Maybe it's even a hardness of heart or a cynicism that's taken root in us over the last few months and makes us skeptical of everything that comes our way, whatever it is, Lord. We truly are sitting under your word this morning, desirous to hear your voice speaking into our hearts. May you speak clearly to us, and Lord, may we have hearts of flesh and not hearts of stone in order to receive all that you want us to know. We pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we're starting this series on Haggai today, um, which begins with a word from the Lord about an unfinished building project. Like all the books of the Bible, the way to understand a book is, is to first have some understanding of its historical context. If you want to know about Haggai, you should understand the historical context of Haggai. We just watched a video that gives us a pretty good idea, but let me reiterate a few points. It's the year 586, 587 B.C. The Babylonians have attacked Jerusalem. They have destroyed the beautiful temple, and they have taken the majority of the Jewish people 
back to Babylon where they will live in captivity, and that is known as the Babylonian exile. About 50 years after that, Cyrus, the king of Persia, invades Babylon and overtakes it, and he brings the Babylonian empire to an end, and then he makes a proclamation that the Jewish people who want to return to Jerusalem are free to do so. And that proclamation is recorded in the Old Testament book of Ezra. In fact, it's really uh, the first six chapters of Ezra are the context for the book of Haggai. So if you're interested in really digging in, I would encourage you at some point, maybe later today or maybe during the week, to pick up the book of Ezra and read it through. Uh, We're not going to read the first six chapters of Ezra to give you context this morning, but I am going to read a few verses from the first chapter. So Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So that last verse might remind you a little bit about Exodus that we just studied not too long ago in that not only are the Israelites leaving captivity, but they are leaving and being blessed as they go with goods for the journey, with goods for the task that lies before them. And that's the first and, and an important point that we get to before we even get really to the book of Haggai. And it's this, that God equips his people for what he calls them to. God always equips his people for what he calls them to. The scripture is pretty plain. Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Your heavenly Father knows what you need. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. So listen, here it is. It's not going to be too pretty, maybe not too well received, but this is the truth. If you need it, you'll have it. And if you don't have it, you don't need it. That's just what the scripture is teaching us. And you can say, but you don't understand. Okay, there's one exception. Maybe you don't need it yet. I'll grant you that that God may provide it in his perfect time. But if you need it, you'll have it. If you don't have it, you don't need it. Ezra tells us that God provided for the work on the temple through the Jews who stayed behind, and it seems through the Babylonians who once were their captors. Now, as we pick up in Haggai in chapter 1, it has been somewhere between 16 and 19 years since the first wave of Jewish people had returned to Jerusalem, some 50,000 of them. Work on the temple had begun when they first arrived. Ezra 3 tells us they immediately rebuilt the altar and they also uh, laid the foundation for the house of God. But then opposition arose in the land. The people who, who had lived in that area and had been accustomed to the Jewish people not being there for so long, all of a sudden don't like the fact that the Jewish people are back and that they're engaging in religious activity. And so they literally hire lawyers to put this to to an end. And um, they did all that they could to to frustrate the work of building the temple. 
They made it inconvenient. They questioned its legality. They did this, Ezra 4, 5 says, throughout the entire reign of Cyrus through the reign of Darius. In other words, the Jewish people were harassed incessantly while trying to rebuild this temple. Which brings us to the second point. The work of God in this world will be opposed. The work of God in this world will be opposed. Now, not, not, not every time and, and at different levels, but you can expect that if you're doing God's work, you're going to encounter some level of opposition. In fact, if you never want to be opposed in this world, don't ever do anything for God. It's a perfect, perfect recipe, right? The reason that we know that the work of God will be opposed is certainly the example of Jesus. Also, the words of Jesus, who said that the world hates me and it's going to hate you too, or blessed are you when, when you are persecuted, not if you are persecuted. But also that the Bible teaches over and over again in many places that we, as God's people, have an enemy. And that that enemy is relentless, and that he, he is one who pursues us, and that his chief goal is just to kill and to steal and destroy he, he wants to thwart the work of God and God's people. He wants, to, he wants to lead God's people into what we see in Scripture and in life, a very predictable cycle of discouragement. This cycle starts with fatigue. It's one of the reasons that we have to be careful to take good care of ourselves and be prone to fatigue. And when we are dead tired, we're not thinking so clearly. That's why Paul, in the book of Acts, tells the elders at Ephesus that they must take care of themselves as they take care of the sheep, right? The cycle of discouragement starts with fatigue, and here's how it goes. We just get tired of fighting for what is right. We just tire of, of, of consistently having to engage in conversations that justify what we believe or what God has told us. It happens again and again. We feel we are always having to explain ourselves, and we're going the extra mile for people, and it's not being returned or reciprocated, and it doesn't seem to be leading to a, a lot of fruit. We just get tired of doing what is right. And very shortly after we become tired, then we give in to this thing called fear. We start to listen to the voices around us, and we begin to think, wait a minute, maybe we have a minority view here. Maybe we are not on top of the game. Maybe we're, maybe we're not right. And we start to worry, oh, well, I'm going to be ridiculed for what I'm saying. If I use the platforms that everybody else is using these days to voice their opinions, I'm going to be ostracized. I'm going to be bullied. Isn't it silly how we have campaigns against bullying and yet cyberbullying and and uh, all this animosity that, it, that we take for granted and even consume is out there without anybody batting an eyelash or calling it what it is because that's what, that's what the fear does. It makes us want to, uh, to pull in and not to be honest and not to be forthright. We're afraid that we are going to be criticized. We're going to be ostracized. In, in, in our culture, we're afraid that we're going to be canceled. We're afraid that somebody's going to tell us that we are irrelevant, that we are old school, and that they're going to write us out of their lives, these legitimate fears. When we, when we succumb to them, the next step is simply failure. And all that means is that we just stop. We just stop doing what God wants us to do. We find other things to do, safer things to do, less controversial things to do. And that's what happened here in the book of Haggai. In the short run, the opposition to the temple rebuilding project was successful. The work stopped, 
and the people turn their attention to those less controversial endeavors, things that nobody would have any issue with, they started building their own houses and they started looking after their own farms and they started creating their own economy so they could get by. And that's where we pick up today in this little Old Testament book. The sounds of hammers and saws and chisels have long been absent on the temple site for many years. And God has noticed, and from heaven he sends word to the civic and the religious leaders. He sends word to the governor and to the high priest through Haggai. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. These people say, interesting that words have meaning. There are times in scripture where God refers to the Israelites as my people. Here he says, these people. There's a bit of separation going on. I said earlier, this is sort of like when God calls you with your middle name involved. You always know that when you get called and your middle name comes up, it's getting serious all of a sudden. Here God has made an observation. These people, really, I can't say that they're mine at this point. This is how bad they're acting. But they say the time hasn't come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Well, you know one way, here's a little tidbit for you. One way to derail an initiative without having to admit that you're against it is simply to say that the timing isn't right. You don't have to put yourself out there. You don't have to go on the record, really. This is how we spiritualize excuses, by the way. This is how we don't deal with some things. We say stuff like, well, it's a good idea, but I just don't think the time is right. Now, sometimes that's true. Timing is very important in any initiative. So sometimes that is true. But you know what? Very often it's not true. Many a godly vision is derailed by folks who use this particular excuse as a covering for their desire to maintain control, to maintain the status quo in a church, to maintain the status quo in a group. Not opposed to the idea, just don't think the time is right. Many a young pastor has brought a flaring vision to a group of people who don't want to do much of anything. And rather than them telling them and being honest, we really don't want to do anything, they say, well, I don't think the time is right. One might ask here, uh, who are these people to decide the proper timing of the rebuilding of the temple of God? Like, who are they, these people who are speaking so definitively, so clearly, with such authority? Where do they come from? God has already determined that his temple should be rebuilt. So who are they to come over the top of God with their own opinion to say, yeah, but not now? When would the time be right if the time isn't right now? What would have to happen? What has to line up in order for them to agree? And how would anybody know? What is a standard by which anyone would know if it's not God's word? Would it be when there's no opposition? Is that when the church moves, when there's no opposition, when everything settles down? Would it be when everyone is in agreement I learned very early on in my pastoral ministry career that if, if you wait for everyone to be in agreement, you're going to be waiting a long time. And many people have honestly found that they can hold hostage an entire body by disagreement and simply by being passive-aggressive in the whole thing. Listen, if you're waiting for everybody to be in agreement on that train, I'm telling you, the train's not leaving the station. Is that what would make people agree that they should rebuild the temple when everybody 
is of the same mind? Or maybe would it be when there was plenty of money? When there was enough money to do this? The economy's not good if you read that first chapter. Things are pretty bad, actually. But if that's the case, if we have to wait till there's enough money, the question would be, well, how much is enough? And you know what the answer to that almost always is? More than what we have. A little bit more, even, is, is an answer. But, but it's not, it's never really a figure. These are just excuses, aren't they, friends? Excuses to not do what God, God calls us to do come, come easy. And I'm not actually standing up here being hypercritical of these folks. Uh, because I personally can, can say that there have been times, and I think you probably could too, where the Lord has sort of impressed upon you a thing to do, a direction to go, and yet you decided, well, not now. Maybe a little bit later. Timing is always an excuse that comes up relative to obedience. I remember when I accepted the call to come to this church to leave the business world and to delve uh, into full-time pastoral ministry. A friend and a colleague of mine at the very same time came up to me and he said, uh, he too was an executive, and he said, you know what, I envy you. He said, I want to do what you're doing, and I'm going to do what you're doing, but I have to just keep doing what I'm doing for a couple more years, just for a few more years. I have to get a few things in order, and then I'm going to leave the business world, and I'm going to go into full-time ministry. You know what happened to that man? He did exactly what he said he was going to do. He spent a couple of years getting things in order. He left the business world, and he became a director of a national missions organization. But for every one like him, there are hundreds and thousands who don't make the leap. He was certainly the exception to the rule, don't you think? People intend to do the right thing. They really do. They talk about doing the right thing. They make plans to do the right thing. They hear the call of God, and they say, yes, I agree with it, and I will do it, but I will do it a, a little later because the timing isn't right. So point three, delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. If God is calling you to do something now, do it now. If he's calling you to surrender your life to him now, surrender your life to him now. Do not delay. If he's saying to you, serve me in a particular way right now, then do that right now. It is not wise to tell God to wait. Yet that is what we do when we resist his call. When when we convince ourselves that we will obey later. So delayed obedience is disobedience. And the, the problem with disobedience is that it always robs us of the good that God intends for us through obedience. And it certainly robs him of the glory that he receives when we are obedient to his call and the doing of his will. You see, God kindly and regularly invites people into his kingdom building work. Jesus said, come, follow me. And many said to Jesus, Lord, we want to follow you. Lord, we want to be your disciples. And so he says, then come, come and follow me. And he said, we will, but first. Do you remember those stories in the Gospels? We will, but first. And, and herein is a fairly universal problem, right? This is the problem that God is addressing here through Haggai. It is a problem of disordered priorities 
problem of disordered priorities. See, because God is supposed to be first. All of us that have had kids and grandkids understand how they put their little hands up and say, wait. Okay. Let's do that. Uh, Wait. Okay. Hold on a minute, is what my nephew used to say to my mother. Hold on a minute. She said, I'm not holding on a minute. We understand that, and we can deal with that in the human level. But would we really want to say that to God? Oh, just wait. Hold on just a minute, God. I have a better idea, God. I have something to do right now that you're not aware of, God. That's something very pressing right now in my life. Have you heard about it? I mean, push through this with me. Understand what we're saying when we say no to God or when we say wait to God. It's a matter of disordered priorities. In other words, we prioritize ourselves before we prioritize God. The Jews have left captivity in Babylon. They have been liberated by God for a single purpose, to go to Jerusalem to make much of God. And they have started to make much of themselves. They have, because of oppression and distraction and temptation, decided collectively that now is not a good time to be obedient. They have put themselves first. And which of us can't identify with that little jaunt off of God's pathway? Putting ourselves first. That is such a common refrain in our culture that you're number one. I said before, we're not the top of the chain, but we're told that. We are consistently bombarded with the messaging that life, your best life, is going to become when you find yourself fulfilled, when you chase whatever makes you happy. That's what we are told. Fulfill yourself, indulge yourself, chase yourself. What does Jesus say? If anyone wants to... Follow me. Come after me. Anyone wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself. So this is the message of the gospel, and this is the message of Christianity, that that gaining comes from losing, from giving things away. The, The ones who want to be first are going to be last. The ones who are last will be first. This is the this is the message of the gospel. Here in Haggai, we have a bunch of people who have been chasing their own dreams, chasing their own ideas. They should have been happy, right? They should have been fulfilled. They were free. They were no longer captive. They could do what they want. But instead, they're living a life of futility. They're living a life of frustration. They should have been blessed, and they would have been if they had been obedient, but they weren't listening to God at all, and so they find themselves miserable. And all of this is because God has made it that way for them. So in verse 5, we have this refrain, consider your ways. It's going to show up three more times in this little book, consider your ways. It literally means set your heart upon your roads or set your heart upon your paths or or ways. The the NIV says give careful thought. So what we're really just talking about is God saying to a group of people, time out, think this through. Give careful thought. Now, I'm going to ask you seriously, in a culture that goes as fast as ours does, when's the last time you sat down to give careful thought to how you live, to what you value, to what you love, to how you love, any of that stuff, careful thought. We don't spend a lot of time in reflection. In fact, one of the, one of the silver linings of this pandemic may, in fact, be that we have had some time to evaluate and to assess that. But without it, would we? 
Probably not. And God is saying, okay, give careful thought. How's this working out for you? How's this working out for you? He says, you've sown much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you're never, you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, and no one's warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. And that's, not, that's not a picture of a fun existence. Now, it doesn't mean that when you have an existence like that, one of frustration and futility, that your, your priorities are naturally or automatically not aligned with God's, but oftentimes that is the case. If, it's, if life is that hard for you, if what it feels like every day is you're putting a square peg in a round hole, it could very well be that your priorities are not lined up with the Lord's. And that's what's happening here. That's what's going on in Haggai. God says, listen, if it's not time to rebuild my temple, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? If, it, if it's not time for you to work on my house, is it time for you to have these luxurious homes? Scholars differ in what that meaning of paneled houses is. Some believe it means uh, it's a reference to decoration like wainscoting. It could be simply, uh, so they would be luxurious homes. Some people think this actually refers to the fact they have multiple homes already, having come back and have multiple homes. But it could also be simpler than that because the word just kind of means vaulted or, or sealed. So this could be as simple as God from heaven looking down and saying, hey, listen, I've been looking at your house, and it has a roof. But I've been looking at mine. And it doesn't have anything. You guys started on this thing, and you abandoned the project. You're over here. You're, it's not raining on you. You've taken care of yourself. It could simply be that that is exactly what God is trying to draw uh, their attention to. I think he's saying, no matter how we understand it, what does your house say about you and how you value you? And what does your leaving this house of mine say about me and how you value me? So let's bring this a little closer to home and see if I can step on some toes and irritate you all before I head off to vacation. How much do you spend annually on housing? Don't say it out loud. Just have it in your mind. Because a demographic and a psychographic report of our community shows housing to be, not surprisingly, the number one expense for people in our area. Comes in at an average of $14,562.23. Some of you think that's high, some of you think that's low, and neither of those are relevant. This is the number, about $14,000 on housing. The number one expense for folks in our area. Followed second by health care costs, amen, amen, and then food. And then, and then the fourth one, you might be surprised, and this is not this sermon, but the fourth one is food away from home, dining out. The fourth greatest expense. The average family spending $14,000 on shelter, maintaining a building that's going to eventually rot and disintegrate. No one, including God, certainly not myself, begrudges anyone a nice, comfortable home. So you have to listen carefully here. There's no problem you having a nice, comfortable home. That is not my point, okay? But my question then is this. 
how much does the average family spend on God's house? Because we know what the average family spends on their house, but how much does it spend on God's house? And I don't mean necessarily the, the literal building, specific building, but just the kingdom work. Let's just use, extend that out to say, how much are we investing in kingdom work? And, and, and then the question is simply this, is it even close? Is it even close? Think about this. What kind of witness, what kind of impact for God's glory would the church have if we took the same amount of money that we spend on shelter and, and, and readily applied it to God's kingdom? What if we took the money that we fritter away on temporary stuff and made it a point to invest it in eternal purposes? And I am not saying, I feel like I've told you more what I'm not saying than what I am saying, but I'm I'm not saying take all the money that you put into your house and give it to God because then you'll be homeless and we'll be trying to figure out how to take care of you. God has no problem with you having a home, a good home. But, it, but he would challenge us to make sure that we care as much about his work as we do about our own. Jesus tells us, right, don't lay up for your treasures where moth and rust destroy, where thieves can break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither of those things can happen. And he says, why? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever you really treasure, um, it betrays what truly in your heart. This is, these are the priorities of your heart. And so there's my fourth point, where and how we expend our time, talent, and resources reveals where our heart truly is. We can say where our heart is. We can make up proclamation or profession, we can give testimony, but, the, but we can actually measure this. Where and how we expend our time, talent, and resources reveals where our heart is, what we truly value. And that's God's issue here with these people, is that the, the ones he has freed and given a task are, are uh, minding the things of, of earth much more than the things of heaven. They have, they have just fallen into that trap that it's so easy for any of us to fall into. We're just dealing with what's right in front of us. And uh, who can't relate to this, that this was their problem? They are tending, again, to their own business at the exclusion of tending to the business of God. Nothing wrong with tending to your own business. There's a word for that. It's called responsibility. And as Christians, we should be responsible. And that's a great part of our witness to the world, that we do pay our bills, that we are considerate in many ways, that we tend to our own. There's nothing wrong with that. It becomes wrong when that becomes all we pay attention to or we pay attention to these things at the exclusion of paying attention to God. It becomes wrong when we become more concerned with our own reputation than we are with his. More concerned with our own glory than we are with his. And the reason we know that that is the case here in Haggai is we have the eighth verse that says to them, go up to the hills and bring and build the house. Bring wood and build the house. So I like this. God doesn't leave you hanging. There's something you can do. Go. Go up to the hills and get, get after this thing. You've left it lying still, but let's go and get after it now. But look at why he wants them to do that. The first thing he says is that I may take pleasure in it. What is it? Does God really care? So listen, when people say things rather glibly, well, God doesn't really care what the church looks like. Oh, really? Well, what if that, if, that, if that church is a reflection on him and his majesty and his glory? I actually think he does care. I'm not saying that you have to have the Taj Mahal, but it ought to be in good shape because you're bearing witness to God. And here he says, I want to take pleasure in this. 
you're going to find as you get deeper into the book of Haggai, Mike starts rooting around in there. There's, there's, they're not really happy about the way this temple is shaping up. It doesn't have the splendor that it once had. But at the same time, God wants it so that he can take pleasure in it. We often think about doing the things in which we can take pleasure. And this, again, is to kind of turn us around a little bit and say, we should consider first what it is that God takes pleasure in. What does God take pleasure in? Not just in relative to a building, but just in relative, relative to my life. But God says, not only do I want to take pleasure in it, but that I may be glorified. That I may be glorified. See, his desire and what he deserves is to receive honor and attention and praise from the way his people live. That's Jesus going back to the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light so shine before men and women that they will see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. That God intends to be glorified by the way his children live, that he deserves that, and that we, by our living, prove that we treasure God above all else. So where and how we expend our time, our talent, and our resources reveals what we truly treasure. And that leads us to the end here. Just the way that Haggai said to God's people, consider your ways, I think he... He says them to us today that this message comes down through the ages. I think that's part of the application for us is to consider our ways. Is what I'm doing pleasing to God? Is how I'm living my life, ordering my life, pleasing to God? Does my life reflect God's priorities? Since the problem is a problem of disordered priorities, what we're shooting for is ordered priorities. Are the decisions that I make grounded in obedience to God. Now we're going to bring this thing to a close. I want to leave you with this to ponder. And it may or may not have anything to do with you, but it might. You know, sometimes when you preach into a larger group like ours, some things that are said, they, they, don't, they don't apply. And we've always said, if it doesn't apply, you let it fly. Okay, don't be offended. You don't go home mad because the sermon concluded with something that made no sense to you. Had nothing to do with me not about you, is it? It's not about me. It's about the Lord. So this might, so bear with me, in other words. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But I want to ask, because I do believe it applies to some. Has God called you to something that you started to pursue, but for whatever reason remains unfinished? vocation, a ministry, a vision, a relationship. It might even be the Christian life, that God has summoned you to the Christian life, and you began well, and then you, you hit that cycle of, of discouragement, and, and you were tired and afraid, and you quit. If God has called you to something that you started to pursue, but for whatever reason it remains unfinished, let me just ask you, where did it go? And why did you stop? And is it time to dust off the spiritual tool belt and get back to that calling? See, Christian Jesus has graciously freed us from slavery to sin, not so that we will be free to do whatever we please but so forsaking the building of our own kingdoms, we might be free to participate in the building 
of his. So let's consider our ways this morning. And, and let's determine to walk in the ways that are worthy of the Lord.